The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. Hello, Mia. Hey, Andrea. How are you today? You know, I've had sort of a, an interesting week. It's been a little bit challenging, but I'm feeling good today because we have such a special guest on the podcast. And I don't know if I told you this, but I was super excited with the announcement of the 2020 National Teacher of the Year this year being Tabitha Rossbroy, and she is joining us today. So I'm feeling really good. Me too. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with her. And, you know, as you know, Tabitha is a 10-year veteran Kansas teacher and is the very first early childhood educator to be named National Teacher of the Year. Yes. And it is about time. And you'll really want to talk to her. Your focus area has been early childhood education for some of your innovation work. So I can imagine you're looking forward to speaking to her about, you know, the important role early childhood education plays in our society. Yeah, I sure am. That's right. And also, you know, remember how a few weeks ago we were talking about what it's like for multiple generations who are living together, either, you know, in general or during COVID. And so the cool thing is Tabitha has an actual intergenerational classroom. That is really interesting. You know, I wish I was more familiar with that. So this is another good reason to have this conversation. I I did have a lot of good experiences through Girl Scouts and community programs with working, you know, within sort of retirement communities and things like that. And I can imagine there's a lot of benefit to that. So I can't wait to hear about it. Yeah, me too. Tabitha teaches preschool for Winfield Early Learning Center, and that's in Winfield, Kansas. And her classroom is actually housed in Cumbernauld Village, which is a local retirement community and nursing home. That's really special. And I'm also just curious, I mean, really curious about how this pandemic is affecting her work, trying to run an intergenerational classroom. I can imagine with the population she's working with that it might be tricky, but she's also just a huge advocate for social emotional learning at all age levels. I want to know how she's thinking about empathy during our really challenging time. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. And, you know, what are her plans for either being back in the classroom or not being back in the classroom, right? Like you've just got to imagine that it can be only tremendously challenging. Well, I guess you would know about this to try and teach preschool remotely. So we'll dig into that with her too. And so let's get started. So listeners, you can learn more about Tabitha's exceptional career in the notes for this episode. But for right now, let's talk to Tabitha. Tabitha, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. First of all, Congratulations on being the 2020 National Teacher of the Year. And I am so excited. It's about time that someone in the early childhood, early learning space was was given that honor. So maybe first, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you? What led you here to this honor? Well, I... <laughs> I ask myself that question all the time. <laughs> I started teaching preschool about 10 years ago, and I actually always wanted to teach preschool once I decided I wanted to be a teacher, and I was just lucky enough to get the job I wanted right out of the gate. And, you know, I have always been super passionate about family engagement, about social emotional learning, 
and just about young learners in general. And I currently teach in Winfield, Kansas, and I teach in a classroom that is housed inside of a nursing home and retirement village. And that is a newer program, which I've been teaching for two years. I never expected when I went into preschool that this is where I would be, but just through the years, this is where I ended up. And I think that my skills have been used wisely in this environment. And I'm excited to talk a little bit more about that today. Well, we're so excited to talk to you about it. So can you tell us a little bit more about that program that's in Cumbernauld Village? And, you know, how did that come about? What gave you the idea? Now, were you the person who started it? And how did that come into being? So having children inside of a nursing home in some capacity is not an original to Winfield, Kansas idea. It is something that's more common overseas and also in some coastal cities. I have heard of programs. We do also have a kindergarten here in Kansas that is housed inside of a nursing home in Coffeyville, Kansas. And we worked really closely to them when we were developing our program. But we are the only public school preschool inside of a nursing home in our whole state. And so that's pretty exciting. But the idea came from our Early Childhood Readiness Coalition, which I was a part of. And it was just a group of community members, teachers, administrators, and other stakeholders that was really examining and addressing the needs of early childhood in our community. And my superintendent had heard of this program. And for fun, you know, just to see what would happen, he approached Cumbernauld Village, a nonprofit um, nursing home and retirement village where we are housed in our town. And by the time he got back to his office, he had a message that said, we're in, what do we need to do next? (laughs) And so then two years later, through the process of working with the architect and the lawyers and all the red tape and interviewing, I actually interviewed for the job, even though I was a part of its creation, we still went through that process. And we were open right after Labor Day in 2018. Wow. I've seen some research out there about the benefits of kind of intergenerational learning and you know, that approach. And how much did you know about that going into it? Did you study up on it? Were you just, was it intuitive? And then what effects have you seen of having that approach? Originally, it was intuitive. You know, it's something that you had heard about and thought, look how much happiness and joy everybody is getting from this situation. And when I was interviewing for the job, when I decided it was something I was interested in, which I think I had known all along, I did do a lot of research. And there's not a ton out there. You know, I had to really look at some scholarly journals and articles. And I truly believe in what the program does. And, you know, it could be any age, but there is something so special about our youngest learners with what we call our oldest learners in our community, (laughs) which we so lovingly refer Mm -hmm. to them as. We call them our grandmas and grandpas in our classroom, all of our volunteers. And what I have seen from my students, you know, besides the immense joy that every single person involved gets out of the program, for my students is increased empathy and interpersonal skills, the ability to have conversations and have back and forth when you're four years old is something pretty foreign to you at that time. But by the time my kids leave, they are very proficient. I have one grandmother volunteer who often says, I don't know what these kids are going to do when they get to kindergarten, their teacher's not going to have anything to teach them because they know everything now. (laughs) And I always say, you know, that's not because, you know, they're any smarter than any other kids. They're just so well loved and so well connected, Mm -hmm. which I could give them some of that, but I couldn't give them near that experience on my own. Mm -hmm. And they also get read to every single day individually. They get 
much more individual attention than I was able to give them with just myself and my two parents in my classroom. And so their academic skills have also increased. Wow. So it's just incredible. Yeah. I have a four-year-old myself. I have two, but my four-year-old, what I find is when she plays with her grandparents, it goes a lot better than when she plays with me. (laughs) They have so much patience. Like they find such joy in just playing pretend play for two hours with her. Whereas I feel there's something else I have to do or so, and they have things to do. (laughs) They have lives, they, they have interests, but there's some connection there. And I see that when she interacts with older generations. And so I imagine it's really rewarding to see that every day. And I, I just wish for her that they, you know, basically lived in my house so that she could have that. So I could see that just transferring that, how beneficial it might be for that relationship to develop at school. Oh, absolutely. You know, when my grandparents, before my grandfather died, lived in a nursing home nearby, I would come to visit them and I would look at the pictures on their wall and there were framed photos of children I did not know. I was just like, who are these kids in your picture frames? And it was the children of the workers at the nursing home. So just having that experience of coming in with their mom or their dad or their caregiver my grandparents grew attached to them. And this was way before I even knew this was a possibility, but that was one nugget I kept as an example of why I knew this would be such Hmm. an incredible opportunity for both the kids and for the residents. Yeah, that's right. I was just thinking about that too, as Andrea knows, and we've had many conversations on our podcast about this COVID time. My husband and I brought our widowed mothers to come live with us because they lived in senior communities that we didn't feel were safe for them just during this time. And, you know, my mother was a former first grade teacher. And I was just thinking about, you know, like everything that they have to offer. They're people who've had careers and maybe some of them in education and some in totally different kind of careers. And they bring all of that into the space with you. Mm-hmm. They absolutely do. They're really this untapped resource in our communities of like love and experience uh-huh. and time to commit. They are giving those gifts that they still have, you know, but they're retired. They're in their retirement and they still have so much to offer. And I just, I can't believe that we get to be a part of that. And we get to witness the empathy that is built in my students for people of differing abilities of people who maybe look different than they do or talk differently than they do. It's just, man, I wish I would have thought of this sooner. You know, I wish I would have been my original idea that I said, you know, when I was born, let's do this. And now you have this opportunity to spread it though, right? That's amazing. (laughs) You know, I think about when I think back to being a child, one of the things that I was actually quite afraid of was going to nursing homes. I was raised by my grandparents and they would take me to visit their parents and their grandparents, actually. And I remember having a fear of that. And I just think in our culture and during this time, culturally in the US, a lot of families don't have kind of mixed generations in the same household. And there are, you know, students who have a different experience. And so have you found that the kids coming in have a mixture of experiences with this kind of intergenerational learning and living? And how do you address those differences? Or how do you kind of approach that with students? You know, they definitely do have some of my students, their grandparents are their primary caregivers, but a lot of my students see their grandparents more like I did when I was a child, you know, just infrequently, whenever they were in town for special occasions, and some of them get childcare from them. So we really do have this varying degree of involvement of, 
you know, seniors in our society involved in their lives. And some of my kids originally were kind of nervous and afraid, mm-hmm. not just because they were older, they weren't familiar, but you know, there are different things. Like we have grandparents with the differing abilities. They might be in a wheelchair, they might use a hearing device, or they might say some pretty outlandish things that the kids are not <laughs> used to hearing. And so a lot of that just started with me with social stories that I would create. And I would talk about what a grandparent was and, you know, when we get older, what happens to our bodies and that on the inside, you know, we're sort of in the same way that you teach about anybody that looks different than you. Just like on the inside, we have a heart and, you know, we're all human beings and here's what we have to offer each other. And it started like that. And even before they came in my classroom, I recorded myself reading a social story to my students and sent it out to them so that they would be aware of my face and aware of some of what the expectation would be. And we also talk about how it's a gift that we get to give. You know, we call ourselves the Sunshine Committee, which the activities director so lovingly dubbed us but that we get to give them the gift every day. They gave us the gift of our classroom and we get to give them the gift of this time in connection. So we're, we're giving to each other and that teaches kids a lot too about relationships. Hmm. That's so lovely. You were mentioning about kids and their relationships with their grandparents. And, you know, we are living in some pretty scary times now where many children aren't able to see their grandparents. And then of course it does beg the question, how is the school running or going to be running during the pandemic? So unfortunately, next year, my classroom in the nursing home will be operating back at our early learning center in the Mm -hmm. same town about two miles away. Mm -hmm. And that was a really hard decision to make. But ultimately, the one that is going to keep the residents at Cumbernauld Village the safest, you know, we have seen outbreaks in other residential senior living communities that are pretty scary. And we definitely don't want to be the cause of that. You know, we are already very careful. Any student that comes into my classroom has to have the flu vaccine. We do require that as well as all of their other recommendations. And we are a little bit stricter following health guidelines. And actually, my kids have been a lot less sick than they have in the past 10 years of teaching. And I think it's because we're so vigilant about cleaning and about hand washing and sanitizing. So I think, you know, it could have been done in a safe way if COVID wasn't such a serious threat because we are far enough removed from the healthcare side where our most at-risk residents are. We're in this separate part of the building, but it just having that many people and kids breathing in the building and interacting with who knows in their own lives was just going to put them at risk. So we made that really hard decision that we're going to be operating at the other building, but we are still going to be making efforts like we did through our original shutdown to make connections and involve the grandmas and grandpas as much as we can remotely. So is your plan to operate on site during that period? Are you making multiple plans? What do things look like for you and your planning for return? So for my students here, we're still not sure. You know, Kansas Mm -hmm. put out a, the governor signed an executive order last, this week, actually, to push the start date back for schools. But a lot of schools are probably leaning towards the hybrid model, where some parents can opt to do distance learning and some can be there in person. For me, I still think it's very risky to be at school in person, not just for the students, but for the health of the staff, right, who have to make this choice do I want to be in financial ruin or do I want to put my health at risk? And so it's just such Mm -hmm. a scary time and there's a lot on families and there's a lot on teachers right now and anybody who works at a school, but that's our plan right now. We want to be back in Mm -hmm. school. Everyone wants to be, but we're just trying to make sure we can put things in place to make it safe for us to do that. Yeah. So let's say that there's going to be 
potentially some version of hybrid or or some distance learning, and maybe you did some of that already in the spring. What are the kinds of things that work best? These kids are so young and, you know, we hear so much about how the younger the child is, the more difficult it is to do distance learning. What were some of the things that you found to be particularly effective or where did you have success? So we decided that even though we were going to be doing virtual options too, we were still going to send all of our students home with materials because access was going to be an issue. Even to small things like buttons or popsicle sticks or, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, ABC cards, things like that. We were going yeah. to send them home with everything they needed to complete a lesson because we couldn't expect a four-year-old to sit at a computer and complete an online <laughs> lesson of any sort. And so we got them equipped. We still recorded videos, had weekly meetings, met with each family individually weekly as well. But the biggest part of what I saw success with was family coaching. And Uh, so this was sort of a pivot for me. You know, I did a little bit of that. I've hosted book studies for families and taught some, you know, parenting style classes. But this was me sort of coaching them through the process of teaching their child. And I didn't realize that that's what I would be doing so much of during that part of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. We've sort of said, you know, especially for young children that during this time, hybrid learning or distance learning is really family learning. <laughs> and there doesn't seem to be a, a reprieve in sight for some families around that. And I think, you know, my own child who I was saying is four, when I put her in front of a screen to do circle time, she runs away. There's no way. <laughs> Everything is follow up for her. So I imagine that's a really stressful. And how are you thinking about you know, and especially I think working with parents during this difficult time or families, caregivers in this difficult time, how are you thinking about supporting the social emotional needs of the kids and the families? And are there things that you're doing intentionally around that? So sort of my number one piece of advice or what I say that really worked for me is that take every opportunity you can to connect with your children and their families face to face. And that's sort of the complaint that I heard from families who thought that it didn't work out, right? Maybe their teacher was just you know, overwhelmed, wasn't trained for this, didn't know how to connect in this way. But every single chance you can get to see your student's face, take that. And if you can't see their face, hear their voice. And if you can't hear their voice, send them a text message. I mean, there needs to be intentional contact. And for me, for my young learners, that also looks like You know, what I I used to do home-based services as a part-time gig on the side with Tiny K, Reach Tiny K, and a lot of that was also a parent coaching model. And so I used a lot of those skills by helping the families set up the learning environment. So that meant me sending home visual aids, picture schedules, stop signs to put on doors where they couldn't go when their mom or dad was working, you know, those sort of things. Like it was about making their home environment conducive to learning, which then set them up for better self-regulation. And it also, it needs to look a lot like checking in with their feelings, what obstacles they're facing, and focusing on solving those problems before you even begin to approach the academic things. Hmm. Those are some good tips. The structuring of the home learning environment, you're making me think a lot. And I actually work in education, so I can imagine those families (laughs) who really appreciated that help. It's Hmm. so hard. I work from home now too, and it's been so difficult for me to manage a routine. I was like, this will be great. I can go back and forth. No, it's so distracting to be at home. So definitely is something that we all need help on. Yeah. And, you know, I think we've talked about this before too. You know, I have a number of friends who are educators and have not though had to teach their own children. (laughs) They're like, 
I thought I knew how to do this and I don't know how to do this. So, I mean, I think kind of to your point before, it's not even like, it's so different from the profession of teaching, you know, trying to teach your kids at home. It's it's like a new field, <laughs> even for educators. It is. And you think about how comfortable you want your kids to be comfortable at home. There's a little, a little less structure, rightfully so, in a place where they are known to relax more, where mom and dad come home to relax, where, you know, grandparents might be. And so yeah. it's actually really hard to turn that into the same kind of structure and environment you would get within a classroom. You know, you're making me also think about in doing this work around social emotional learning, there's been this surge toward acceptance of that as necessary in schools and, you know, to support teachers and to support students. And that's kind of moved up from preschool, right? That that was, you know, in preschool and kindergarten, that's part of your work. You're assisting and even in the, you know, up to grade three, usually. And then I remember there was less acceptance kind of past that point. And people sort of felt like, well, now we're doing the work of school when they reach that. And so what's the advice you would give to educators across the board or that like, what could people in education learn from preschool and early childhood education about social emotional learning and its importance or how they kind of bring it in to their classrooms? Well, I would remind people that your brain is not even fully formed until you're 24 years old. So you're probably still learning a little bit of everything until that point. And you're learning still after 24, but it's just a little harder to keep it soaked (laughs) in there. It's like acquiring a new language is much harder when you're older, right? Because your brain isn't as spongy and ready to soak those things in. We know that critical brain development happens in early childhood, but that doesn't mean that we can stop teaching some of those critical skills, social and emotional skills like self-regulation, how to interact with a friend. So social emotional skills are not only talking about your feelings, right? I always want to remind people that because I think that we get a little caught in the word emotional when we talk about it. I almost wish there was another word, but it really is a lot about that regulation piece. So I'm having this big feeling and it's overwhelming me, but now I come to a decision point. What do I do? When we have better self-regulation skills, that leads to better critical thinking skills, which leads to better academic skills, right? And being able to solve real world problems, to solve problems in our relationships or problems in the workplace. And so they really are foundational for other kinds of success in your life. And it is so worth the time investment. And what you can sort of learn from preschool is that it's great to have a curriculum for social emotional and to deliver that every single day. That is sort of the first step. But social emotional learning has to be a part of the fabric of your classroom. It has to be present in everything that you do. You have to take time to guide students through that learning. So many times I hear parents say, they should know better. Or teachers say, I told them that once, they should know better. But it's sort of just like, you know, I heard it once compared to like, you're in an old laundromat and there's a light going out all the time. <laughs> That's sort of how like teenagers brains are, right? They just like sometimes are flickering on and sometimes off. They sometimes seem so wise and so mature, but other times they're just not accessing those higher level thinking skills of how to self-regulate and how to solve their problems. So we have to help them. We have to teach them just as intentionally as we do anything academic because social skills are foundational to other types of learning. We think so too. Thanks for being an advocate for that. Tabitha, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, in March, we all came to this understanding that we were in a global health pandemic. And then a couple of months later, we realized there's another pandemic happening. 
So I'd like to maybe kind of lean into that a little bit and talk about the responsibilities we have as educators, even from the very early ages to start talking to kids about race and equity. And I'm curious about how that plays a role in your work. You know, I've always said that, you know, people who teach younger kids are some of the most loving and accepting people that I have ever known. And part of it is, I think, because we just, we deal with just like these delicate children who come to us right from their parents, right? Like having only experience at their homes, most of them. And so I feel like those are things we talk about a lot because Mm -hmm. we think of it as their first exposure. You know, It really starts with building empathy, though. And I think that's something that every educator can work on and every family can work on, which is just realizing that everybody, A, is doing their best, right? So seeing the best in other people is sort of a piece of empathy, but also understanding that our friends and our loved ones probably don't mean to hurt us or not everyone's out to get us, that they probably just aren't able to communicate something, So I'm a huge fan of conscious discipline. I don't know if you guys have heard of that or know, but you do great. And one of the big skills is positive intent, right? So I teach my students that, you know, if your friend pushes you in line, that doesn't mean that they don't like you. They don't think that your hair is cool or your shirt is cool, you know, things that they get upset about, but it just means that they didn't know the words to say, to ask you to move. And so, you know, we have a job to do to keep you safe, but we can also help teach that skill to our friend by saying what our expectation is of them. When they need space, here's what they need to say. And so that same tool goes for equity, seeing the best in other people people, no matter what's on the outside, no matter what their family is like, just knowing that everyone is doing their best and then they deserve the same level of respect that we would give and expect them to give to us. Hmm. I'm thinking about what, you know, when you're talking about, maybe I just have a special place in my heart for early, (laughs) early childhood because I benefited so much from the care of, you know, my preschool and kindergarten and kind of early experiences with teachers And I think there's, I don't know where the saying is from. There's a saying about being a parent. It's like there's a piece of your heart walking around outside in the world. And when it falls down and gets damaged, you feel it. And and I've always really felt that about educators too, but in particular, (laughs) early childhood educators. And I think there was a study recently that actually showed that educators feel more stress and responsibility about the children in their care than their parents do, than the parents of those children, that it creates a really, it's such a a wonderful burden, right? And I know so many educators that are grateful to have that impact on kids' lives, but also this is a challenging time. It's more stressful than ever to be an educator. What are the ways that you think about social and emotional skills and self-regulation in the context of adult educators and maybe some things you do for yourself or communicate to the families too. Just in your opinion, what are some of the things adults can be doing to manage their stress, to manage their big feelings, given all of the demands of our current situation and the new demands on educators? Well, you know, my husband used to joke that my work was my only hobby, and that's why I didn't know how to relax. Oh, we have that joke in my house, too. (laughs) You do? Great. And he wasn't wrong, right? Like, I realized quickly when I started having issues with my blood pressure several years ago that it was stress-induced because I wasn't taking time for myself. And so a few years ago, I really worked hard to make exercise and leisure time a part of my day every single day. Now, that is not 
always possible, but I do my best. And those are two things that have really helped me. And I'm not one of those people that can go to the gym when they're angry or upset and, you know, run it out because that actually has the opposite effect on me, just increases my heart rate, makes me uncomfortable. But if it's a part of your everyday, it's more preventative, right? So like, you know, being able to draw back on that calm and how you feel. When you're always upset, like a child, it's almost like trauma, stress in our lives. In the way that people say things like we've glorified busy, I think in some ways we've really just allowed trauma to seep in and never relaxing has rewired our brains because we're so busy and we're so on the go. And so we do have to be really intentional about self-care and about creating boundaries in our lives. Someone once told me that there's such a thing as too much empathy, meaning you take on everyone's problems and everyone's feelings and you're not able to create any space for yourself to relax and to feel soothed with the same techniques that you might be teaching. And for families, I think that's also the same, especially during this pandemic. They, you know, teachers are out here advocating for what we need to be safe, but we also have to remember the new burden that this is placing on families. You know, no, we're not childcare, but one of the purposes in our lives as educators is that we are providing a place to go when parents can't be the educator, right? It's not apprentice style like it was hundreds of years ago. Not everybody's going into the family business. We're a social program and we're here to make sure that families can get what they need. We want families to be successful just as much as we want children to be successful. And so we have to remember the stress that they're under too while we're communicating with them. So for teachers and for families, I would say, give yourself some grace. I keep talking about that word over the last several months. Don't beat yourself up. We know you're doing your best. Stay in communication with your child's teacher, with people that other people that you love, people that make you laugh, people that bring a little bit of sunshine into your life. Just because we're in a pandemic and we can't be face-to-face doesn't mean that we don't still have some of those emotional needs that connection really fills our hearts with. So take those opportunities to take a little time for yourself and to connect with people. That's really good advice. And it does seem like, you know, as teacher of the year, part of what your role is, right, once you have been given this award is that you take a year off. And so could you tell us a little bit more about that year for you and and how it I'm assuming that it's quite different than (laughs) because of what's going on right now, what someone might normally expect in that role. So what I was told to expect in the beginning, before we knew just the extent of this pandemic, is that I would be not teaching for a year. I would have a long-term sub. I would be kind of on a sabbatical. And I would have around 150 speaking engagements all over the country. Mm -hmm. And so I'll be doing a lot of traveling when it is safe. For now, most of my events are virtual. I have had one in-person event recently and that went well, but it was nearby, you know, so it's Mm -hmm. a little different than getting on a plane and going somewhere, but it's just, it's going to be a definite, a new experience. Even as Kansas teacher of the year, I was out of my classroom quite a bit and I kept having to remind myself, I'm just serving my students in a different way now. I'm serving my profession in a different way because I was having that that FOMO, that fear (laughs) of missing out, that loss of not being with my students, not being with my former colleagues. I just, it was hard, but I keep reminding myself that I have purpose in this, you know, especially in this pandemic. Some of the things that are important to me that I'm passionate about are so important right now. And so I look forward to furthering that work. Hmm. I think that the position of National Teacher of the Year, you're just in such a unique space to really give voice to educators and to show up as, especially, you know, having been 
you know, working with kids in a classroom or in a center or whatever, that sometimes those voices aren't as elevated as they should be. (laughs) So why do you think educator voice, you know, in our current circumstances is particularly important? So teachers and other staff in the school, right? So everybody that works with kids, they're really on the front line of this important work of education. And we usually have so little to do with what policies affect our classroom. And I just really don't know many other professions that that's what happens, right? You know, we're the biggest employers in a lot of towns, a lot of small rural towns, especially. And so I think that it's really important for us to speak up and say, here's what's affecting us in our small town, or here's what's affecting us in our big city, or in our inclusive center, those things, because people don't know what we're going through if they're not in there every day. We know our students best, we know our profession best. And in times of hardship, it's even more important that we speak up because someone has to be the voice for us and for our kids. How big is Winfield? We're about 12,000 people. Mm-hmm. So on the smaller side. And yes, definitely. Things. It's bigger than the town I grew up in. Mm-hmm. So it feels like a big city to me, <laughs> but it so, is a rural yeah. community. Yeah. There are unique challenges for small rural communities around education and historically and into the present, they're not very effectively served, especially by, I would say, education businesses and some of the funding structures. And so I think it's, you know, of added importance that you're coming from that community and having voice during this time. Yes, yes. We're definitely unique in that way. You know, Winfield, though not very ethnically diverse, it has a lot of rural poverty, which creates you know, its own wealth of issues that often go sort of unnoticed by funding programs, right? We definitely have our own set of issues, but there's also a lot of great things happening in small towns that maybe aren't quite as possible in bigger cities and being some of the relationships that we have with our community. But yeah, there's definitely, you have to know the community that you work in to really understand and be able to serve it best. That's why we need teacher voice. That's why we need people speaking up for people who maybe don't have access to a way to do that. Hey, Tabitha, we've heard that in, in previous interviews, you have said, and this is a quote, that there's a very powerful narrative about who teaches young children. And part of that narrative is the expectation of compliance. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. You know, a lot of times when I am in a leadership position, whether that be within the NEA or KNEA or local events, I'm often the only preschool teacher in the room. People are often very shocked that I'm there. Like maybe they didn't understand that that people from preschool wanted to be in this position or what I would have to offer. And it wasn't like they were being malicious, right? It was just sort of their thought, this is very strange. One of the reasons is because pre-K is not fully funded anywhere. It is in our community, but it is definitely not the norm around the state or around the country. And so I think there are just fewer of us who have had the opportunity to take a leadership role. But, you know, when I'm at gatherings with my friends pre-COVID, when that was safe to do, one of their favorite things to do is to ask me to use my teacher voice, which (laughs) they think is really (laughs) hilarious because they think it's so soothing and so loving. But I never realized that there was a different voice until they started asking me to do it. You know, we all have a different kind of our work voice, our work persona. And it's different than the voice I would use when I'm yelling at my cat to get off the furniture or something. It's definitely one that speaks to little people all day. 
But I think because we speak to young people all day, people who are smaller and sweeter than us, people expect us to be meek or people that just go with the flow. And again, Mm. I don't think that's done maliciously, but it's something that's just been learned over time. And I could really have a whole other podcast on how a little bit of that is about the patriarchy and that teaching (laughs) young children is women's work and things like that. But they think maybe we're not as serious about education because we speak to young children all day. But I'm here to tell everybody that that is not the case and that there are incredibly smart, talented, well-educated preschool teachers all over this country who are ready to speak up for their students and for the needs of their career. I would challenge any CEO in corporate America to go toe to toe with my four-year-old and tell me that her preschool teacher is meek. (laughs) Usually on this podcast, we like to just get a little bit personal and educators often have really inspiring people in their lives that have kind of been for them what they hope to be for young people. (laughs) So I have that question for you. And then, you know, given that you work with those sweet little kids, I'd like to hear about maybe a student that's also had a profound impact. So is there someone who, as you were growing up, that was like, you were like, this is my template, or this is someone that really has shown me, you know, kind of good social emotional skills or how I might approach being an educator. And then second to that, what student would you, I'm sure many, but if you could pick one to share about an impact of a student, that would be awesome too. So when I was growing up, first and foremost, I think my friend Jennifer, her mom, Cindy, who actually passed away several years ago from a lung disease that she had, Mm -hmm. which is super tragic. She was the parent that everybody wanted to be at her house, right? It wasn't because, you know, she was an incredible cook, although she did make good salsa or, (laughs) you know, there was something amazing, like they had a home theater or anything like that, because it was just a regular house, regular people. But it was the way that she spoke to us. She spoke to me with such kindness, like she saw me and she saw what was special about me. And she saw things that were wrong with me, but she didn't judge me for those. And so I found myself really drawn to her understanding of who I was as a person. She treated me like I was valued, even as a young person. And so that is something that has continued to inspire me. You know, I always say that we need to speak love into our students and we need to speak to them like they are the most special and incredible people that we know because they are and they deserve that. And she taught me that. But also Miss Pat Walton, she was the first preschool teacher that I ever got the honor of observing, right? My college Spanish class went down to teach preschoolers Spanish. I was taking it for dual credit in high school. And I got to, for the first time, observe teaching. I'd always been sort of the recipient of education and I never watched a teacher. And that's when I first saw teaching as an art form. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw her working with students, really being a part of their learning in a way that was as more of a guide than it was delivering content. And I was so inspired by her. And I think about her a lot. She's retired now, but I give her a lot of kudos for inspiring me to be in the classroom. But when it comes to students... I really think back, you know, I had a little girl in my class about three or four years ago and she was in foster care. And so she had come from a lot of trauma. Some we didn't even know, right? We weren't even sure in her four years of life, what she'd experienced. And she was one of the most challenging students I have ever had in my class. (laughs) She really, her survival method was sort of causing chaos, right? Because that's where she was comfortable in. She wasn't comfortable when things were going well. It felt weird and strange to her when things were going good and everyone was being kind and it wasn't in chaos. So she really challenged me to control my own emotions in the classroom. You know, something that I thought I was really good at, but I really do believe 
and this sort of goes back to conscious discipline, that you really have to develop discipline within yourself in order to be able to help children develop discipline within themselves. And so I really had to regulate my own feelings and my own triggers and my own emotions so that I could be the best teacher for her. And she eventually ended up moving at the end of that year and she became adopted with her siblings, which is great. And I don't really get to hear from her anymore, but I think about her all the time. And, you know, through the process of me teaching her all the things that she taught me about how to be a better person and more responsive educator. Wow. Yeah, I totally agree. It's those kids that are the most challenging that teach you most about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I have had the same experience. (laughs) So Tabitha, you know, on our on our podcast, we like to ask our guests, what one act of kindness is that they have witnessed recently to share with us. So recently I was at Dylan's and I was doing my grocery shopping and I saw an elderly couple there and you know, this was an act of kindness towards this man's wife. So it wasn't to a random stranger, but he made sure that when he got, she got into the car before he did He put the car away. And even though it was hard for him to walk and had probably similar mobility issues to his wife, he still made sure that her safety sort of came before his, really putting someone else's needs above your own. And for me, when you witness that kind of beauty and kindness in the world, it really changes you. You know, it made me think about, am I doing that in my own marriage? Am I doing that in my own relationships with other people? He seemed to be filled with joy to be taking care of her. And that, it just moved me to tears. I sat in the parking Aww. lot and watched the whole thing, the whole thing unfold. And I do have a soft spot yeah. for the elderly in our community, yeah. but just so, we can be so shaped by kindness that we witness. We can read stories and that will never affect us as much as what we witness in person. And I really think that can have a snowball effect and that you can continue that kindness in your own life when you see other people doing it. Mm. I love that. And I love that you noticed it. I think that there's something to being open to that as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I would love to hear where listeners could learn more about your work so that they can kind of follow you and learn more about, you know, what you're doing as National Teacher of the Year. So I actually do have social media. You can find me on there, on Facebook and on Instagram. You just need to look for 2020 National Teacher of the Year and you will find me. Or you can search my name, Tabitha Rossbroy on Twitter. That's just my handle on there is Tabitha Rossbroy. And there's also a video on YouTube if you want to see a little bit of my classroom, some of the volunteers. It's called Cumbernauld Little Bikes. And it was made by a high school senior in my community for us who's now in film school. He did an incredible job. He made that for us last year. And it's something that every time I watch it makes me cry. And I've seen it probably a hundred times. So you should definitely check that out. That's wonderful. Thank you for spending your time with us today. Well, thank you for having me. It was so lovely talking to you, Tabitha. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. You can find more episodes at growkinderpodcast.org and make sure to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher.